We Christians often seek the quick fix, the easy path to spiritual maturity. We want to be spiritual giants by following five nice, neat little steps to spiritual gianthood. We subscribe to the gain-without-pain promises of the prosperity preachers that are all over the place today. But that's not God's plan for spiritual growth. God prescribes hard workouts to produce spiritual muscles. God prescribes practice and hard work and struggle as we grow to be like Christ in our lives. God trains our souls in the gym of life. God is in the business of soul training. Your soul, my soul. Soul training requires discipline. It requires hard work. It requires long practices to grow the muscles that God wants to produce in us spiritually. Hebrews chapter 12 this morning is where we're studying. Hebrews 12 talks about the principles behind God's discipline and how God works in our lives to make us into the people that he wants us to be. And it isn't easy, and it isn't neat, and it isn't quick. No one else can do it for you. And you can't buy some technology to turn your spiritual flaws into perfect pitch. Remember this, though, first of all. God's discipline proves God's love. Verses 4 through 6, Hebrews chapter 12, where we pick up. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. A little word, yet, gives us pause, doesn't it? You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And, or but, you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. The Hebrew Christians were going through very difficult times in their in their experience. And in this letter, he is writing to address those hard times. Verse 4 begins by noting that they had not yet resisted in their struggle with sin to the point of paying with their blood as martyrs, as some Christians had, of course, in the first century. But he says, they were forgetting already, even in the struggles and the personal things they were going through, they were forgetting already the call of God on their lives. Literally, he writes, you have forgotten for yourselves the call which to you as sons is preached. They were struggling with financial concerns that drew them away from the Lord. They were seeking the good life here on earth instead of investing in the goals of heaven. They were falling away from church and the fellowship of other believers in the pursuit of personal prosperity. And he addresses all of those things in the letter to Hebrews. They were struggling with sickness. They were struggling with weakness. They were struggling with discouragement. And they were falling away from the Lord. 
I see this happen so often as a pastor, and you've probably seen it in your own lives as well. Life as a Christian gets a little tough. It's not easy. Maybe people don't treat us quite right. Maybe church doesn't feel so good to us anymore. We get distracted by the goals of our careers and the struggles of life and distracted by the pleasures of our lifestyles. And we forget God's call on our lives. Verses 5 and 6 are a quote from Proverbs chapter 3. And in Proverbs chapter 3, he is addressing sons and their relationship with their earthly fathers. And he gives those sons, those children, advice regarding how they are to respond to the discipline of their earthly fathers. The word for discipline here is a broad word that involves a great deal of fatherly responsibility. You know, we think of discipline strictly in terms of, say, punishment or something like that. That's not the word discipline. I mean, it includes that, but it is much bigger than that. The word means to educate, to teach, to train, if you will. It also means to assist in the development of a person's ability to make appropriate choices through practice. That's right out of the dictionary. To assist in the person's ability to make good choices through practice. The practice of life. That involves correction. It involves guidance. It even involves punishment sometimes, yes. To assist the child in developing as he or she should develop. Now, let me just stop for a minute because Proverbs 3 is addressed to earthly fathers and earthly children. Let me just stop for a minute and say that this is the job of every earthly father. Dads, this is our job. And we are not to abdicate that job to our wives. It's our job. God holds us accountable to teach, to train, to correct, and yes, sometimes even to punish our children so that they get training, they get practice in how to make good choices. That's all part of a father's discipline. And that task should not be left to mothers. We should not give it over to the church either, or to school. We should be directly involved in the education of our children academically, spiritually, physically, emotionally. We're supposed to be there. That's God's call on our lives. That means we should be involved with our children in youth group, for example, and at, in church and, and in school, with uh, wherever they're going to school, we should be involved. We should not give that up to so-called paid professionals to do our job of training our children. And children are to respond properly to the discipline of their parents. That's what he's saying in Proverbs 3. Now, the author of Hebrews turns all of that focus on us as children with respect to our heavenly Father, in terms of our spiritual relationship with God as our Father. And we as spiritual children must respond properly then to His discipline of our lives. We are not to regard lightly this training, he says. And that's a command, by the way, for all of us. Don't minimize it. We're not to treat it as minor or unimportant. 
that God is involved as our Father in the process of training us and shaping us and discipline and all of those factors. Correction, teaching. We're not to, to, to seek to avoid His correction in our lives when we do things wrong. And we are not to faint under His correcting hand on us. We are not to become weary and quit giving up under the training that God brings into our lives. Why? Well, because, and this phrase is vital to spiritual growth right here. This phrase, whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. That is vital to our Christian life. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. In all of the ramifications of what discipline means, including punishment, yes, correction, Training, practice, and righteousness. The verse goes on to say that God does punish every son whom he receives or accepts. The word for punish here is a a harsh word. It meant to actually scourge or whip someone. Now, God doesn't literally whip you and me. This is a metaphor. It is a figure of speech for God's correction in our lives. God doesn't literally whip us, but we could say he sometimes whips us into shape. It's a metaphor. The principle to remember is that God disciplines the ones he receives or accepts as sons or daughters. Sometimes people say, God must not love me. Or must not really be a Christian because God seems to be bringing all this hard stuff into my life, like punishing me. Well, that's all backwards, isn't it? The point is that God disciplines the ones he accepts. Isn't that beautiful? As parents, of course, we say that to our kids. They don't always believe it, but it's true. And it's more true with our Heavenly Father. God's discipline is the proof that He accepts you. You are accepted by God, and the proof is the hard times you experience by His hand. Discipline proves you are loved. Now, how does God discipline us? Well, through our circumstances, right? Through our sicknesses, our job losses, disappointments, the criticisms of others, even the flaws of other Christians in the church God uses to shape us. Church, you might say, is the great gymnasium for the soul. This is where God rubs us with other people like rock on rock to sort of knock off all the rough edges in each of us as he shapes us with his discipline in our lives. So don't get discouraged. Don't quit under all of that pressure. Think of it as God's way of getting your attention to grow more like Jesus Christ. Dennis Miller tells about how, as a parent, he was trying to be a good father and discipline his son and teach his son responsibility. And so they required... They required the son, whenever he went to somebody's house, to call in when he, got, when he arrived, right? And let them know that he was there and safe. 
Well, he did that at first, and then, of course, eventually he'd get busy and forget to call. And so they began to warn him that if you don't call, then you will lose that privilege of going. And then the next time came when he forgot to call. And Dennis, with regret as a dad, was thinking, well, I'm going to have to call, and my son's going to lose his privileges because I've got to teach him to be responsible. So as he called, he, he prayed, and he seemed to sense the Lord saying something like, treat him as I treat you. And so he called, and he let it ring once, and he hung up. And immediately, his son called back. <laughs> Hi, Dad, I'm here. What took you so long, Dennis said. Well, we started playing, and I forgot, but Dad, I heard the phone ring once, and I remembered I'm glad you remembered, he said. Have fun. And they said goodbye. And then he writes these words. How often do we think of God as one who waits to punish us when we step out of line? I wonder how often he rings just once, hoping we'll phone home. Is God trying to get your attention somehow through your circumstances? Phone home. Phone home. God loves you. Secondly, this morning, pain is the price of a disciplined life. And I don't like this lesson. Verse 7. He says, It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Now, unfortunately, the King James translates this verse with an if, making it a conditional sentence. So the chastening or the discipline is a conditional statement. But the Greek text here is not a conditional statement. It's a statement of fact. Literally, the verse reads, Unto discipline... You endure. To discipline, you endure. It is a purpose statement or a result statement. The goal of our endurance, and we sure have talked a lot about endurance and perseverance here in the book of Hebrews. The goal of our endurance, the goal of our perseverance in life, of sticking it out, of continuing on faithfully, the goal is discipline. Now, he's using the word discipline in a slightly different sense when he says it that way. Discipline here refers to self-control and personal righteousness. It refers to a disciplined life. That's our goal. And that disciplined life is described down in verse 11 as the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But pain is the price we pay to arrive at the goal of a disciplined life. Which Pain is the price we pay then to arrive at the goal of a a life that exhibits a peaceful fruit of righteousness in all that we do and say. And it's through pain that we arrive, that we endure at that goal. Now, that sounds so archaic, so old-fashioned, and so, well, painful. (laughs) But it's God's way of shaping us in life, God's way of training us. So let's unpack his argument here in these verses. First of all, in verse 8, correction proves our connection. Verse 8, he says, But if you are without discipline, apart from discipline, of which 
all of you have become partakers. So he's saying, yeah, I mean, this is not true of you. You have experienced this. But if you were without discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Now, we've already seen this point in the previous verses, but here we see it sort of more graphically portrayed in, in really some pretty harsh language. If we are without discipline, if we are apart from discipline in our lives, then we are not children of God at all. We are illegitimate children. If we never experience any pain in our Christian lives, then folks, that's when we should question whether we're Christians at all. We don't question it because we experience pain. We question it when we don't experience pain and struggle. That's what he's saying. So if you are suffering physically, emotionally, personally, then that can be proof that you are a Christian. And God is trying to shape you through this experience. And that is exactly the opposite of what we often think as Christians. You know, if you get out of line, you want God to correct you. Why? Because that shows that you are his son or daughter. If you want to be Christ-like, which is the goal then you want God to shape you so that you can arrive at that goal through the experiences of this life. We often think of it, though, exactly the opposite, don't we? We look around at church and we see people who look like, you know, they have it all together and everything's going well for them. And they're successful. And we say, wow, God, (laughs) am I really, what's wrong with me? Why am I going through the stuff I've got to go through? Am I really a Christian? Is there something wrong with me, God? Well, God is shaping us through those things. The problems are proof of our Christianity. So we start, we should start by recognizing the spiritual principle that correction proves our connection to God. You say, well, Dave, I could sure use a little less proof right now. (laughs) I hear you, God, you know. (laughs) Okay, I get the message. I get the connection. Why do I have to keep on struggling? Well... I don't know the answers to all of those questions, believe me. For you, I struggle with those questions and answers for myself sometimes. But God alone, you see, knows why he is putting you through what he is putting you through. As a sovereign God, he controls everything. He alone knows why. But through it, he is shaping you. And I can tell you that it proves your connection to God as your Father. Second principle, verse 9, submitting leads to living. Submitting leads to living. Verse 9, furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? So the analogy continues then. Our earthly fathers discipline us, And we still respect them. In fact, the Bible commands us to respect our earthly fathers, doesn't the isn't that true? Where it's not an option. Now, understand that the verse is talking about 
fathers who are seeking to do their job right. It's not talking about abusive fathers here. It's talking generally about good fathers who discipline us properly, although always imperfectly, don't they? Because no father is perfect. And he will acknowledge that in the next verse. But if we can learn and grow through the discipline and guidance and correction of earthly fathers and still respect them, how much more, he says, with a heavenly father always does it perfectly. How much more with our heavenly father should we be subjected to him and live? See, abundant life comes through submitting to our heavenly father. Submitting to God leads to really living for God. Abundant life comes from submission. And only when we submit to God's discipline do we learn the freedom that comes from God's shaping of our lives. I love the words of Elizabeth Elliot, former missionary, fine Christian writer for many, many years. She wrote these words, Freedom and discipline have come to be regarded as mutually exclusive, when in fact freedom is not at all the opposite, but the final reward of discipline. It is to be bought with a high price, not merely claimed. Men are free to soar into space because they have willingly confined themselves in a tiny capsule designed and produced by highly trained scientists and craftsmen, have meticulously followed instructions, and submitted themselves to rules which others defined. And now they're free to soar, you see. Discipline leads to freedom. Every athlete knows that principle. You take a thousand shots at the basket so that it becomes free to shoot at the basket or to run that race. The the discipline actually leads to the freedom. And submitting to God's discipline in our lives leads to abundant life and the freedom and joy of following him. Third principle, the gain comes through the pain. Verse 10, For they, that is earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. Our earthly fathers discipline us for a short time. Notice what he says, as seems best to them. Notice the reality of earthly fathers and our imperfections as a dad. I know. As seems best to them, they did the best they could. It's flawed, yes. Sometimes earthly discipline is flawed and imperfect. And our earthly fathers let us down or treat us wrong. And as an earthly father, we do that too. But God is not like our earthly fathers. God disciplines us for our good. It's not as seems best to them, but for our good, for our benefit, for our profit. We benefit from God's perfect discipline. Well, what happens through God's discipline? We receive his holiness. That's the path to holiness. 
It's the result of God's discipline in our lives. We become more holy. We learn to be like Christ through the pain of discipline in our lives. There's no gain without the pain. That God uses through our families, through our relationships, through our problems and our struggles. God is shaping us to become holy. Pain is God's tool to shape us into holy men and women of faith. Pain is God's method of instilling holiness. Now I suspect that you are a lot like me and would say with me, God, I don't like that plan. Couldn't we come up with a better one? I can think of a few. But I don't know best, do I? What's best for me? God does. And God alone. And God says to us, verse 11, we don't have to like it to grow from it. We don't have to like it to grow from it. Verse 11. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. What a great verse. What a great verse. Why? Because you see, the Bible always deals with reality. And the reality is, we don't like it. We don't want to struggle. We don't want to go through pain. We don't have to want to have to work hard. We want the result. Right? But as every athlete knows, you don't get the result without the hard work and the pain and the struggle. And as Christians, we don't get the result either without that. And we don't like it. And God knows that. We feel saddened by that discipline process. We want it to end. But when we allow God to train us through the painful circumstances of life, we develop, he says, the peaceful fruit of of righteousness. Isn't that a nice expression? The peaceful fruit of righteousness. I like that. It's not just right living that gets instilled into us, but the peaceful fruit of right living. That's something different. We do right then with a sense of peace. Lots of people do right but they're miserable and they make everybody else miserable in the doing of right. They're legalistic, they're judgmental, and we know it. And we feel like we're being judged by these right-doing people, right? But he says, when God shapes us, we end up with the peaceful fruit of right-doing and right-living. Spiritual maturity comes when we accept with a spirit of peacefulness that everything that God brings into our lives, we're no longer fighting God. We're no longer trying to put other people down or fighting other people. We're at peace. And we have that peaceful fruit that comes from right living and following Him. When others hurt us or offend us, we look to the Lord and we ask what He's teaching us through all of that experience that we may respond with a peaceful spirit of righteousness. That is the mark of spiritual maturity. Not right doing, right living. Lots of people can do right. 
but doing right with a peaceful spirit. That's the mark of spiritual maturity. We don't have to like God's process to grow from that process. My heart is sunk. It seemed to me I should never have any success among the Indians. My soul was weary of my life. I longed for death beyond measure. Those are the words that David Brainerd described in his journal in his early days of missionary work to the Native Americans in the 1700s. He wanted to die. He was so discouraged. And things didn't improve much after he wrote that. It got tougher. For the first two years, no results in his work with the Native Americans. He felt his prospects as dark as midnight. Three years into the work, though, he finally witnessed a small revival among the Indians of Cross Weesung in New England. After about another year and a half, the number of converts to Christianity numbered about 150. So a church was being born. Not huge numbers like we hear in mass evangelism today, but a start. And then, five years on the mission field, David Brainerd died at the age of 29. That was it. After Brainerd's death, Jonathan Edwards, whom many consider one of America's greatest theologians, he published Brainerd's journals, including statements like the one I read. These were widely read in America and in Europe, and in fact, William Carey, the father of modern missions, the man who ignited the modern Protestant missionary movement, which has resulted in millions and millions of people coming to Christ since the 1700s all over this world. You know what moved into the mission field? David Brainerd's journals. He said, these were what I read, and God used them to change my life. So who can judge whether our work is worthwhile or not? Who judges that? Only God knows. Certainly we cannot, especially in the midst of discouragement, whatever you're going through. Friends, when we face pain and discouragement and we struggle, we should respond with renewed commitment. Verses 12 and 13. The author of Hebrews comes to the end of this and he says, Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint or dislocated, but rather be healed. When you face tough times, that's not the time to back off from commitment. When people treat you wrong, don't get discouraged. Renew your commitment to follow the Lord. Commit yourself all the more to serve the Lord faithfully with everything that you have. When our hands are weak and our knees are feeble, stand up straight and get going again for the Lord. That's what he's saying. 
We should make straight paths for our feet so that we don't sprain our ankles or dislocate our joints walking the path of life. That's a fairly literal translation, actually, of what the verse is saying. Instead, be healed. That's a command. How do you command somebody to be healed? He doesn't say heal yourself. Be healed. Because God's the only one who can heal us spiritually from our times of discouragement. And every one of us gets there. Be healed. Trust God. It's sort of like Jesus when he said to the paralytic man, he said, take up your bed and walk. Yeah, right. Like I haven't walked in years and years and years. Take up your bed and walk. It's a command. Trust God and get going again. That's what he says to us. Don't succumb to the spirit of despair. Sort of what God is saying is buck up. Get going. This is what it's all about. One day, when the great Reformation leader Martin Luther was really, really discouraged, and he would get into these black moods of despair and discouragement that would last for some time, and he was really struggling with this despair and discouragement that day. His wife came down and into his study, and she was dressed all in black. And he said, why are you dressed for mourning? Did somebody die? And his wife said to him, yeah, God died. And Martin Luther said, God didn't die. What are you trying to say? And she said, then stop acting like it. Thank God for wives, right? Buck up! Get going. Stop acting like God died. Renew your commitment. Henry Dunant was a wealthy 19th century Swiss banker. He was sent to Paris by the Swiss government to work on a business deal with Napoleon. He arrived early only to be informed that Napoleon was off fighting a war against the Austrians in Italy. So Henri Dunant got back into his carriage, set his horses galloping down to the battlefront. But when he got there, just in time to hear the bugles blast and see the thundering charge of Napoleon's cavalry and all of his troops. Now, Dunant had had never seen war. And all of the horror and the carnage of war right played out in front of him. He watched in horror as cannonballs tore apart human flesh and Trees were completely obliterated from the countryside, and acres of land was heaped with the maimed and the dying. He was horrified. He was so devastated that this banker stayed there for weeks and helped the doctors care for the wounded in churches and in farmhouses. After his return to Switzerland, he couldn't get those haunted images out of his brain. And he was so distracted in his career as a banker that he lost his entire fortune through bad decisions. And he was a wealthy man. Yet even with his career derailed, all of his fortune gone, he had a sense of God's sovereignty in all that occurred. And at that time, he wrote, or later he wrote about that time, I was aware of an intuition, vague and yet profound, that this was God's will. 
It seemed to me that I had something to accomplish as a sacred duty and that it was destined to have fruits of infinite consequences for mankind. Maybe you recognize the name because Henri Dunant was the founder of the Red Cross. And he left his career and he founded the work of the Red Cross which has saved millions and millions of lives and given aid to countless victims of war and suffering and struggle all because he lost it all and found God's call. And for establishing that organization he received the very first Nobel Peace Prize. What's God's call in your life? And how is he shaping you for that call? Father, teach us. Teach us to follow you step by step. Teach us to surrender to the way that you are shaping our lives and the call that you place on our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Hymn number.